it. We're back with episode three of this Gumcast. And every two weeks, I'm covering a new chapter of the book with a new guest. And today's guest is going to help me dive into the inner child by exploring his own mischievous stories as a kid, but now his son's mischievous stories and how he's reacting to them as a father. So we're going to get into some really deep stuff today. This chapter is a fun one because if you've read chapter three, you know that that's the chapter where Muscat is out on an incredible adventure. And Jay has talked him into doing something that he Muscat knows is wrong, but there's something so damn thrilling about what they're about to experience. And I think there's something healthy about that. When we as kids go out and, you know, don't do the things that our parents told us to do. And then our kids drive us crazy as parents. And in this episode, we will be diving into just that. And my guest is someone that I have seen go through so many stages and he's always been so supportive of me including this and so we've just seen each other go through so many different phases in life but this phase when he has become a father is so interesting to me and i'm going to be diving into that so today i'll be with ahmed Semeh, who also runs a program called african crossroads with a dutch ngo called hivos uh, which was the reason I ever visited Kenya. And so I'm really excited to get you guys to know him a little bit more and know me through him as well. So without further ado, here's Ahmed Semeh. But first, here's some really exciting music to get you guys in the right mood. Just telling you earlier, like, I really see you uh, doing this. Uh, really, it fits you, man. Like, uh, like congratulations, really. And uh, uh, yeah, like <laughs> you're totally in your element. Thanks, man. And m- my goal today is to bring out your element, which I enjoy a lot uh, in real life. You've played so many different roles in in my life, but most importantly. Uh, led me to Kenya, which inspired actually the whole setup for this part of the book. So I'm really excited to getting the audience to hear more about your stories and all the stories that you share with me. And hopefully we'll give them a, a feel about uh, also your work with African Crossroads and, and what we did on that Kenya trip. Uh, but first, I would love to share with them the story that inspired chapter three, which you told me and I found hilarious. And uh, why don't we start there? So basically, uh, I had a good uh, friend, uh, an Egyptian guy called Marwan. We became friends. Mm-hmm. And uh, one day, we decided to play with fire. <laughs> uh, and it became kind of a... I don't know if testosterone is the right word at this age. I think you were like seven or eight. I don't know. You're the doctor. You can tell me there's testosterone <laughs> and the issue. Yeah. 
then we started like discussing who can make who can use the matches more efficiently without uh, oh. ruining the the sticks basically uh and uh, he had the genius idea of uh, using carton to make it a bigger fire and then the thing is we were uh, we were next to a supermarket and uh, marwan had mm. the brilliant idea that he can use the cartons to make the fire bigger by then i realized i lost so i left to be very honest and then i was playing uh, mm. like a couple of blocks away like closer towards my house and then i could see smoke coming out from a distance and then i looked at marwan mm. and i saw him coming from a distance running and yelling at me ahmed we need to tell someone it's got it caught a lot of fire and it's going all over the place <laughs> and then i decided i ran home i was too afraid of course and i decided i want to tell my father uh the problem is mm-hmm. me and marwan like so my father was doing hajj he had he went for the hajj with my mother and they left mm-hmm. me with an acquaintance of my father and we ended up jumping mm-hmm. through our house's window because we wanted to watch a cartoon so my mom and dad left so our house was locked we wanted to watch a cartoon so we mm-hmm. jumped through the window <laughs> and then security came mm-hmm. and it was a scene and uh, <laughs> but it was over uh, and it, i didn't I, i really thought it was water under the bridge nobody's going to tell my dad So that night uh, like maybe like a week later my father had already came back like two three days already and uh, I went to home to tell him father this happened and the moment I came in he said Ahmed I need to talk to you about something I was like yeah papa but I need to he's like Ahmed sit down there's something really important I need to talk to you about and I was like okay I thought maybe he already knew about it So I sat down and then he started discussing with me the um, uh, your house is a sacred space and you should never have jumped uh, into the window with your friend and da 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 and uh, I forgive you but you're grounded mm. for a week. And then I realized <laughs> okay what if I tell him we just like supermarket is on fire. <laughs> so I decided uh, I'm not going to tell him to be very <laughs> very wise so, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so what is it did you wanted to say i was like no nothing i'm okay uh, and <laughs> that was it a week after i was grounded uh-huh. i ended up leaving the house and uh, then i realized that marawan took my football and my bike and he was playing with them without telling me because i was grounded and I also discovered that he didn't tell anyone oh. about the fire so him and I mm-hmm. went into a big argument mm-hmm. and then I decided to go to the security of the compound and I told them so did you figure out who uh, set up the fire it was Marwan <laughs> 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 then they looked at me and they said excuse me like yeah, yeah Marwan set up the fire of the supermarket uh, yeah yeah he's a really bad boy <laughs> should really go tell his dad <laughs> and then uh, they took me uh, into the kiosk of the gate of the compound they took my name and uh, my father's name and when i was leaving i felt that this something really bad <laughs> and then i found both my mom and dad coming in and asking me about what happened So of course they, they told my dad and it turns out uh, actually the uh, the supermarket owner accused two people of setting the supermarket on fire and they arrested them. They arrested them. They arrested them and they were going to deport them. Whoa. Wow. Yeah. 
so I had to go and testify in front of a judge. <laughs> At seven years old. Yeah, I was eight. It wasn't a judge actually. I went to some guy's <laughs> office. I remember he was a Saudi guy. I remember it very well. My mom, of course, put on me the best attire I had. <laughs> uh, you know, like a shirt and pants and tucked the shirt inside the pants. And, uh, mm-hmm. and they told me to be honest, say everything, you know, and I went. And of course, I was grounded for two more weeks. But, uh, but yeah, but it seems it was a big issue, actually. Uh, because they... Uh, so yeah, I don't know. That's the story, man. Well, tell, tell me about how your how did your dad react uh, afterwards? So you were grounded for a couple of weeks, right? They told you that this was wrong. What did they tell you your mistake was? Why were you getting grounded? Actually, they really he he told me what didn't you tell me? I told him no. I I tried to tell you, and I think uh-huh. this was the first time I saw my dad recognizing that maybe he should have allowed me to speak. Mm. I remember this very clearly, actually. It was uh, this feeling. Funny enough, they both were not angry with me at all. That day, actually, was one of the first... When I really look back at it, my father's look back then, he, I saw the first time, I saw regret that he should... Uh, oh. That, yeah, you actually did try to tell me. I remember his look when I said that. I tried to tell you, and then he really didn't argue again. The, the bad experience we had is when uh, also Marwan, myself, and a third friend of ours in the same compound in the same damn summer. Mm-hmm. So there was a guy who uh, was a physiotherapist and he would train us. I fell asleep. Mm-hmm. And we ended up waking at 11.30. And we mm-hmm. were like almost, because at 9 o'clock we should have been in front of the houses. Mm-hmm. But we weren't. And then... Basically, we were like two hours and a half late. Uh, so uh, when we uh, I arrived, uh, I saw from the from the balcony my mother standing crying with a lot of women around her, and, uh, and I ran up to uh, hug her. And then I could look from the balcony and saw my father coming from a distance with like twenty mm-hmm. men behind him. <laughs> so my father, I, I saw my father's glare like 200 meters away in his eyes. Of you, where was he? <laughs> then this was the first time my mom was hiding me from my dad. My father hit me, by the way, that day. Really, like he really hit me. Actually, hmm. no, the flip flops. And he was—I don't know if he was really angry or he really got worried, or maybe after all the previous incidents. By this incident, he was fed up, uh, which. Uh, which, which is really, again, looking bad, the same uh, reflecting what's happening with my son. When I, uh, I was just sharing with you that my son uh, sneaked out of school uh, a couple of weeks ago. Yeah, I wanted to ask you about that story too, because the parallels are very interesting. And uh, I wonder, like, you know, tell us a little bit about that incident and, and how you felt as a father in that situation. My son and his friend, uh, long story short, they just decided to uh, sneak out during lunch break without anybody noticing. And I think it took the school like 20 minutes to realize it. Mm-hmm. And they walked for two and a half kilometers for his, uh, towards his son, his friend's house. And when they arrived, they were too short. <laughs> so they couldn't, they were, they were too short to open the door and get in. They were too short to, no, they couldn't open the door from outside anyway. So they needed to ring the bell, but they couldn't reach the bell. <laughs> They were locked a outside. Tiny detail, a tiny detail. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> the problem with that thing is it, it extended the time they were dis- they disappeared. So, yeah. and 
So of course, uh, Faz, my son's uh, friend, uh, Yusuf's friend, he, uh, his mother was inside. She got the phone call. They called the police, and then well, she started arranging search parties and planning what to do. And then when she was leaving the house, she opened the door. She find the two kids there. Uh, I, I, I didn't punish my son because when I and my wife went to, I had just had my operation, so I couldn't move. And my wife actually went uh, to pick him up from school after the incident, and she told me he's really afraid of you. And that really brought back this experience I had with my dad. Hmm. Like this moment when he said, and I was really afraid of my dad. I was so afraid hmm. that. Hmm. Like, I was actually worried that I might get them worried, but when I saw my dad's anger, I it, there was no shame or anything, there was pure fear. And uh, I, did, I was very upset that Yusuf felt that, actually. Hmm. And it made me wonder again. So now I have a daughter as well, like uh, Danila. Yeah, congratulations, uh, by the way. Thank you. Two, three months old, then, if you really yes, want to think about recent. it. Uh, speaking of paradoxes, uh, how mm-hmm. would I have reacted? Uh, sorry, looking back to that, burning the supermarket thing, I was proud. I was, there was part of me that was, there is some pride that we did something cool as such, right? Mm-hmm. As children, unfortunately, it was always there. One thing that I definitely used to do, and I think I was proud of it back then, um, I don't know if you, you ever had that same experience, but my cousin and I would go like on adventure shoplifting, is what I would call it. We were, we were so good <laughs> at, at, at like stealing candy, it was like, it was an addiction. And I didn't know, even know what an addiction was, but I think we were maybe nine or ten. And we would uh, go into like supermarkets, and I remember... Sometimes we, we were traveling on a trip with our family and we realized that the supermarket in the hotel that we were staying at would be open in the morning. And so sometimes we'd go at night while the supermarket is working and just dare each other to steal something, you know, and, then, and, and like a specific candy or a specific sweet. And we'd go out and, and we just kept getting better and better and we wouldn't get caught. And then we realized that the supermarket is actually open in the morning. And the guys are sleeping inside, so we would actually go really <laughs> slowly and silently, and and steal the candy while they're sleeping. And it, it was such a rush, you know, it gave us a euphoria unlike anything else we can experience at that age. <laughs> yeah, adrenaline uh, addiction. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I don't know if it's fair to call it an addiction, but it was for us. It was like a natural instinct, and. Um, it was. It wasn't. You know, we weren't trying to harm the people. Obviously, that wasn't the intention. But we were just experiencing what it means to interact with the outside world and do these things that are wrong. And I don't think I had any kind of shame about it. It was more of a sport. <laughs> but did you have to go around saying, telling everybody that you were doing this? In our in our like group of friends, yes, we would we would boast about the candies that we got and stuff. But we, we never told the parents for sure. If they're hearing yeah, this, it's probably the first time that they... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Same yeah, thing is happening with my son. Yusuf now, hmm. of course, he, he never gave us the full story. We didn't really happen all of a sudden. He, he, he gives you a piece every three, four days. He gives you an extra piece of information about what happened. <laughs> and I can't help but noticing there is some pride he has inside in, in himself for doing this. That he pulled mm-hmm. it... Uh, well, they pulled it off. And... Mm-hmm. 
I, and I really wonder if my daughter had done this, would she have felt that or would she have felt shame? And is that a society thing or is this something we instill in? I, I don't know where this comes from. Hmm. But I really think a girl would feel more ashamed for some reason. Uh, it's just an assumption here I'm uh, thinking, of course. Yeah, I was just reflecting on those stories now in my own, uh, uh, the own things that stick out from my own childhood. And one one story that comes up, it's it's not my proudest moment, but I was like probably the same age that you were when you were uh, with that fire story, about seven or eight, maybe even younger. And I just remember walking around a pool and I'm going like laps around it for whatever reason I wanted to keep walking on the tiles. And at one point there was a girl that was walking the opposite way. And at some point we we met each other. <laughs> and we both wanted to keep walking on the tiles of the pool. And neither of us was willing to go the other way. Yeah. And what did you do? I pushed her. I pushed her in the pool. Into the water. Into the water, yeah. <laughs> and my mom was sitting right there, so she jumped right after her. <laughs> And wow, I think two or three adults run, ran after her because she couldn't swim. And it's, I know I'm not very proud of that moment. I, me- I remember getting also um, grounded for like a month. It was the biggest time I ever got grounded. And, you know, I, I sometimes think back at that and I'm like, did it have anything to do with me being a boy and her being a girl? Or was I just a kid that wanted, you know, to keep going his own way. And it's interesting because we still confront people in similar ways. Um, but it was like just a moment where that 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 is how it happened. And, you know, could have been the other way. She could have been the one that pushed me. Um, but still, we were too young to even think about that dynamic, you know, so. Well, the uh, gender issue, I think. Like, yeah. When do you think about the gender? Who starts putting the gender idea in your head? Exactly. Uh, to be very frank, and my and from my upbringing, no, it was always something. I knew I was the boy. I I knew I was the man, and I knew I was privileged as a man. I was mm-hmm. I was told that uh, straightforward. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Straightforward. Uh, and, uh, by your dad. Yeah, yeah. By my dad. By stories my dad would tell me. Because this is how my dad was raised. Like my dad comes from. Uh, uh, like a traditional Egyptian conservative family, when my dad would mm-hmm. tell me stories about how he, uh, when he was like, you know, nine years old or eight years old or whenever, and his sister who was in her 20s, he would tell her, you cannot wear this going out. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, actually, you know, my father passed away like three years ago, and a lot of times mm-hmm. I would sit down and try uh, to... Uh, reflect because we weren't that close we were pretty different him and i and we only really reconnected after i got married mm. I think actually after i had the uh, yusuf my son my first my son uh, five years ago then my mm. father got and i got really close and we had a lot of conversations we never and i'm so happy that we had these conversations before he passed mm-hmm. and uh, i really got to know him because i really feel i didn't know him beforehand Mm-hmm. So I'm trying to make sure my son knows me and not mm-hmm. wait until the end of her, you know. Now that you have a daughter too, she's only months old, what kind of world do you hope she grows up in? You know, I, I suffered really close to me. Uh, 
like a woman I really appreciate. Uh, she experienced sexual assault when she was 16 years old. And uh, after it happened, she was in the, her mom and dad were divorced and she was in the custody of her mother. And uh, of course, her father was devastated. And one day they were together in the car and she uh, he was dropping her somewhere. And then she said, no, no, I can just drop me here. I'll walk it all across this area. And like, no, this area is not safe. And then they went into an argument and then he told her, not under my watch. Hmm. So he was referring to that, you know, you're not going to get assaulted again under my watch. Uh, that friend, uh, she didn't speak with her dad for two years or maybe three years after he said that. Hmm. Uh, I thought she overreacted. Why would you do that? But then I understood that when he said that, he made this man win who assaulted her. Hmm. You guess what I mean? Yeah. She didn't he feel the support that she would expect from the safety. It's not about the support. It's about that, no, this is my life. I'm not going to be afraid because this, what this man did to me. Mm. I'm not going to be. I just really wish that my daughter lives in a world when she can do what she wants to do without the fear of, of others uh, taking it away from her. Uh, I really wish my daughter can grow up in a world when she can walk down the street without having to look back 20 times. I really fear, uh, wish my daughter would grow up in the world that, you know, she uh, goes to the interview and doesn't accept lower pay uh, just to get the job. I, I really hope that she can go to a club and not fear of being groped or... That's it. That's what I really... Uh, I wish for my daughter. I, I, feel, I really wish that my daughter, if something bad happens to her, she's not afraid of telling me or she feels it was her mistake. Mm. That she can really come and really feel safe enough to tell me and know that I was forced. Mm. That's the world I want my daughter to live in, but I don't think that is going to happen. So what I really wish <laughs> I can offer her that safe space in the sense of that she can uh, deflect and keep moving forward uh, and feel safe with me and her mother and her brother now as well. That's fantastic and very refreshing to hear a father think that way. I think it um, must have requ required a lot of growth on your end to to get to kind of challenge everything also you grew up with because oh, I think we were... Yeah, I have no idea. Tab, <laughs> 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 let's switch gears a bit and, um, you know, you mentioned your work at Hivos. Uh, I got the pleasure to experience African Crossroads. Um, and I think I was there on the third edition that you had, and it, which is a conference that aims to bring Africans together in such a beautiful celebration of art and music and projects and um, technology and business. It was such an interesting uh, experience for me to live that. And being, of course, in Kenya specifically was... Um, it was very inspiring to me. But first, why don't you tell us about African Crossroads? Well, I'll start telling you about African Crossroads is that, you know, like more than 90% of research about Africa is done outside, is done by non-Africans or people outside of Africa. Uh, uh, the flow of knowledge about what's happening in Africa, uh, you can easily see it with the flight uh, routes. Like if you want to go to Mali or Mauritania or Niger or even uh, Kenya, a lot of people in North Africa had to go to Europe before 
to connect to go to uh, Kenya. Uh, a lot mm. of people from uh, when we had the, fir the first African uh, crossroads in Morocco, a lot of people from uh, Ethiopia, Nigeria, uh, they had to fly to France or uh, Germany or Spain or Tur European countries in general before they or even the UK before they were able to fly back to Morocco. Mm. So this was basically why we decided to have Af to try to create this African crossroads when we try to gather thinkers, doers, people like multidisciplinary leaders uh, from all over the continent, have them come together and share what they're doing and uh, and inspire others and learn about others. And uh, uh, again, it's multidisciplinary events. So we bring people from the technology sector, we bring a lot of entrepreneurs, we bring a lot of people from the green sector. Uh, artists, movie makers, uh, musicians, uh, uh, producers, and they basically meet and get inspired together. It was certainly an inspiring experience for me, and I encourage anyone that's from Africa to figure out more about African Crossroads. It certainly left its impact on me, and I'm sure many others. Sameh, it's been awesome having you here. Thank you so much for your time. And one last question that I have for you is, what keeps you doing this work with African Crossroads? What motivates you about the continent? For us, it was really interesting because it, for us, this is, shows us how the future of Africa looks like. Like these people to, represented to us and we think it can represent to the world what Africa is going to look like in 10, 15, 20 years. Mm. Because we believe the people that you met, the people like yourself as well, and others, they are going to be uh, leaders within, the, like in prominent positions, uh, creating uh, large-scale impact and leading uh, initiatives that will, uh, uh, you know, move Africa forward. So it was more of not what the world can give Africa; it was more like what Africa can give the world, if you want to put it that way, and what Africa can share with itself. that wraps up chapter three we'll be back in two weeks with a new guest covering chapter four please subscribe if you haven't done that already give me any feedback that you have on these chapters i'm currently writing more so i'm really keen on knowing what you guys think of both the audio and the writing and lastly remember that there's an inner child in all of us that wants to play wants to be seen and we'll tend to fuck up every between every now and then. So let's not beat them up. Let's be nice to ourselves. And I'll see you next time.